it's extremely important to have the ambition to build a billion dollar company. But at the same time, you need as a founder to be humble enough to realize that uh, on specific talents, you're going to scout for people who are 10x better than you are. And you're going to give up part of the job that you did as a founder during early stage. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, a podcast that brings you insights and tactics from the greatest SaaS minds across the world. The show is brought to you by SaaStock, the conference to turn your SaaS up to 11, returning to Dublin in October 15th to the 17th, 2018. On this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show, I take you to the SaaStock on Tour Paris stage, where Rachel Delacour, VP of Startups at Zendesk, talked with Marie Hortense Varin, Principal at Partech Ventures, Samantha Gerosalmi, Partner at Alaya, and Evgenia Plotnikova, principal at Dawn Capital, about what it takes to become a billion-dollar company and what's the role of the VC in this beyond the funding the journey. In their conversation, all three investors are honestly expressing their hesitation with the term unicorn. That doesn't come from conservatism, but rather realism with the European market. There are about 60 European SaaS unicorns and four IPOs to date. Between the three funds, they've invested in two of those successful exits, namely Mimecast and Criteo. While promising companies abound, there are more important things to keep in mind on the road to scaling successfully, which Samantha, Mary Hortense and Evgenia have picked up and share on the panel. Listen on to here. While there is no science to becoming a unicorn, there are patterns. And what are they? It's very hard to build a billion dollar company on uh, a market that's two or three billion uh, worldwide. You need to be on the, the right market, the quality of the team, and the ability to start with a very strong ambition, as uh, Samantha just mentioned, and to recruit early, very senior talents who will help the company um, to grow and scale and actually uh, evolve into this maybe one day unicorn status. What are the signs a company has unicorn potential? It's not the volume of the business, it's more the quality. In SaaS, you have plenty of metrics that you have to check uh, between the, the churn, uh, the LTV, uh, uh, the CAC ratio and all the things. So all the clients that will take the risk as we've done investing in earlier stage to pay the product of the company. What is the role of the VC in helping a company grow to a billion dollars? You have to focus on specific areas where you can bring value. The angle we chose at Partec on purpose was a business development. Uh, the reason we did that is uh, we have a bit more than 30 corporates uh, who invested money into the Partec funds and we leveraged them actively. Uh, we have three people in-house in our business development team who are not making deals. They're just in charge of creating synergies between these large corporates and others in our network as well as uh, companies in our portfolio. As Mary Hortense mentions in the end, if your VC isn't helping you hire your SVP, you should get another VC partner. We'll tackle the topic of finding the right VC partner at our upcoming SaaS Open Tour New York event on June the 20th. It's your chance not to simply learn how to secure the best partners, but also to meet them on the day. We have limited tickets left, so if you want to grab yours now, go to sasdoc.com forward slash on tour forward slash city forward slash New York to find out more. As we're approaching the 100th episode of the show, we're offering a special $100 discount on tickets. Just use code NYCREVOLUTION100. Now on with the show. Hi, 
Hi everyone. Uh, so I am the entrepreneur. I'm supposed to to be super nasty, but uh, I won't because uh, they are super nice actually. <laughs> okay, let's be rational. Uh, so I would like to ask you girls to present yourselves, uh, your fund, and give at least two names of uh, companies you have or you had in your portfolio uh, who looked like a unicorn or on track to be a unicorn. Uh, first, and then just for just for you to give you a sense of uh, my questions, um, uh, I wanted to to understand what they what they what, what was the pattern, you know, of uh, of their portfolio of the unicorns uh, guys, you know, they are they are helping, and uh, but but also there would be a, a questions about VCs accountability. So so let's keep focus uh, until the end of this panel, please. You present yourself, maybe. Uh, hi, Samantha. I'm partner at uh, Elia. Elia is a fund that was created in uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, we invest mainly in B2B deep tech companies. Uh, we have raised so far to 50 million uh, over different funds. And a couple investment that we've done that was or are still unicorns or that might be unicorns, either in SaaS or not, Uh, we were early investor in Criteo, um, in Miracle, in the SaaS, uh, that are doing marketplace for others, uh, Shift Technology, that's doing detec uh, fraud detection for insurance makers, a uh, couple successory. One is Unicorns, which is a Criteo that was valued at 2.2 billion in 2013. Um, and the other two that will be unicorns, meaning in terms of valuation, that will value will be valued more than one billion for sure. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Marie-Hortense, so I'm a, I'm a principal uh, at, uh, at Partec. So we're uh, a quite an old VC firm, actually. Uh, founded 35 years ago, initially in San Francisco. Uh, we now operate from SF, Paris, Berlin, and uh, most recently Dakar, as we just launched Uh, a VC fir fund just focused on African tech. Um, basically, we invest across all uh, sectors, really. So we do SaaS, of course, but we also do consumer, we do mobile, um, so very broad. Um, we have uh, a few investments uh, which are performing really well in our in our portfolio and which we're certainly hopeful for them to become one day maybe unicorns, even though um, you know it's it's uh, it's kind of a, an overhyped word as well. Um, I saw actually that uh, Jean-Charles uh, Samuignan, the CEO of Alan, was on the stage today. Uh, so it must, must mean that Alan is considered as sort of a SaaS business by uh, the SaaS stock organizers. So that's typically uh, a super interesting company um, Which is a which is a health insurer actually. Um, so uh, we're certainly super hopeful that they're going to one day develop into uh, into a, a unicorn. And uh, we also are investors in companies such as Brandwatch, for instance, uh, which is a, a UK-based SaaS company specializing in social media listening uh, and and insights, uh, growing tremendously. Um, so investment from our, our growth fund, so more at a more mature stage, uh, and uh, very hopeful for them as well. Evgenia? Um, my name is Evgenia Plotnikova. I'm a principal at, at Dawn Capsule. 
Um, so we are an, a B2B-only fund, and we exclusively invest in B2B SaaS and B2B fintech. We've been around for roughly 10 years. We were funded in 2007. Uh, we're lucky enough to have had a, a few exits already. So one, and the most notable one, I would say, was in our first fund, which is a company called Mimecast, uh, which is an email archiving and cybersecurity company, which IPO'd for a billion dollars. And it's worth uh, $2 billion today. In fact, it's the only London-based uh, SaaS unicorn uh, today. So hoping that there'll be more that we can find. Uh, in the second fund, I think the, one of the biggest successes uh, is iZettle today, and that, that's a fintech company, but that's likely to be uh, the first European fintech unicorn as well, so watch this space. And I would say a couple, a couple others that are kind of up and coming and we're hopeful for them to be unicorns as well will be Showpad and Calibra, who are both European companies, but we have taken them uh, to the US, uh, which now have uh, an American presence and they're growing really fast there. Uh, in terms of the, the fund, so as I mentioned, you know, been around for 10 years. We exclusively do B2B. Um, that's what we, we're good at, I think, which is don't, don't get consumer very well. Uh, and we do series, series A and beyond. Super. Thank you very much. Uh, you were all mentioning during the, the preparation of this panel the, the fact that you absolutely dislike uh, this uh, buzzword about unicorns or else. I like the unicorn <laughs> concept. Uh, Sam, in particular? Uh. I'm, I'm known for being pessimistic. But, um, when you know the numbers of unicorns that are still acquired in France, meaning that there's four unicorns over Europe that was acquired in France or acquired in France, which is Criteo, OVH, Vente Privé, and Blablacar. Uh, over 60 plus unicorns in all Europe. So it's just that I'm kind of factual in terms of numbers. I'm not chasing for unicorns. For sure, at the first time we invest in company, we want ambitious international company that will perform all over the world. This is what we fight for at the beginning when we invest. And afterwards, um, the problem is... Uh, how much are our company is at it? Meaning that when you know that the average uh, exit amount for a company in France is a bit more 20 million euros and in Europe it's a bit more over 50 million euros, um, it's quite a big challenge to chase for unicorns. So I'm just factual. It's not that I don't like it and that I don't want to have unicorns in my portfolio. For sure we want and this is what we're looking for. Uh, but we're looking for scalable companies. That's why we invest mainly in B2B companies and that we're really bad at B2Cs. Um, it's because we don't know how to chase for those companies in terms of first investment and we don't know how to refinance those companies. In B2B, it's quite that zero one, but kind of. It's either you have clients, you have revenue, you have qualitative revenue or not. Um, there, there's no science about uh, be becoming uh, the premise of you know who is becoming a unicorn or, or not. But uh, and we we all would like to of course to to learn much more about that. There is plenty of uh, books for entrepreneurs and founders, etc. But uh, even if it's not a science, you've seen some patterns, I guess, in your portfolio in terms of uh, founder psychology, founders. You know, how they, 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 they behave at some point at this stage of the development of their company, I guess. So could you tell us a little bit more about that, Marie-Hortense? 
Sure. Uh, maybe first, just to add to uh, what Samantha just said, I think uh, there is also a difference between uh, being valued as a unicorn and being exited as a unicorn. Uh, we all know about a bunch of companies today um, who've made it to the unicorn status on private markets or just valued from minority investors, from VC investors as unicorns. I think it's not a 100% conversion rate and to, to an exit at more than 1 billion. And that's what we want to look for. And the second thing is, uh, as a VC and also even as an entrepreneur, um, you can met, make also a much better return sometimes on smaller exits. Uh, it all depends on the the, the deal structure uh, and the ownership rather than, uh, and, and of course the entry valuation, uh, rather than just the exit valuation per se. So uh, just, you know, being careful about uh, what it means to uh, be a unicorn. Uh, there are many meanings and uh, not always uh, the, the most positive ones. Um, when it comes maybe to uh, to patterns, um, I'd say, of course, the, the team is, is a big part of that, but maybe just one caveat before is uh, the markets. Typically, it's very hard. It, it seems very simple, but uh, it's very hard to build a billion-dollar company on uh, a market that's two or three billion uh, worldwide. So I think it's, uh, first of all, you need to be on the, the right market, playing on the, on the right market. And then, of course, uh, in terms of uh, patterns, uh, the quality of the team um, and the ability to start with a very strong ambition, as uh, Samantha just, uh, just mentioned, and to recruit early, very senior talents who will help the company um, to grow and scale and actually uh, evolve into this maybe one day unicorn status. It seems obvious this, but what does it require from the from the founders to be able to hire right? What what are the patterns of those kind of founders when you say, okay, this guy is knowing yeah. how to recruit right? Uh, so A, uh, a lot of maturity about organizational um, thinking. So uh, it's, it's not a given. Uh, it's not something you learn in books. Uh, very often you hear entrepreneurs who will ask you for uh, books recommendations about how to build, uh, you know, a, a great team. Uh, it's really something you have to, to think very carefully about and to be mature enough to envision where the company will be and what it will need in two, three years from now. And second is also humility. Um, it's, extremely important to have the ambition to build a billion dollar company but at the same time you need as a founder to be humble enough to realize that uh, on specific talents you're going to scout for people who are 10x better than you are and you're going to give up part of the job that you did as a founder uh, during early stage and make sure that you hire this VP sales with 20 years of experience in software um, rather than just hold on to the customer relationship as you've been doing since the beginning as you were the basically the, the founder so in touch with uh, pretty much uh, each and every client out there. Evgenia you mentioned the, the, the confidence of the of the founders as well. I feel like I almost have nothing nothing to add. Um, so j just a quick point on sort of um, valuations and unicorns and whatnot. I think in the European context the exits are still far few in between. Mm. Right? So so valuation on paper to Maritans' point and, and actually corporates actually buying uh, companies at a premium or the IPO markets being just, just as liquid as they are in the US is, is still not quite the case, right? So there's still a lot of work to be done on, on exits. So it's, it's not that I hate the word unicorn, it's uh, with different fund sizes, there are different kind of exits that you can expect, right? People forget to think about our economics as well. And we'll talk about sort of VCs, right? But if you have a fund of 200 million versus a billion, it's kind of different dynamics. Um, in, in terms of founders, I mean, yes, absolutely. Uh, I think it's kind of 
the different kinds of founders. There are extroverted founders and introverted founders. And there's, you, you don't need to be uh, an alpha kind of type personality necessarily to be successful. I think it's, it's more about a relentless desire uh, to, to continue and to keep going and to evolve, right? I think a founder at a Series uh, A is not the same founder as a Series B, not the same founder as, as a public company CEO. So the desire uh, to, to keep on going and to adapt uh, as, as your company changes is crucial. Or alternatively, as, as Marathon says, be um, humble enough to recognize where the gaps are and, and hire for those gaps. I think one thing that we haven't actually mentioned, which is maybe kind of a little bit bluntly obvious, we kind of have to build a product that people want, right? Like if you, you know, whatever ambition you have in the world, uh, whatever, however large is the market, however good of you as, as a founder, unless you have a product that people want to buy, it's just not going to work, right? It's a simple supply-demand equation. And then once you build it, it's making sure that you continue focusing on, on the customer and continue evolving your product, be it in terms of features or be it in terms of verticals or whatever, whatever else it may be. Sam, uh, you mentioned the, the international growth uh, patterns. Um, yeah, but basically we maybe ask the question differently. Um, Uh, we ask ourselves in, uh, for example, the last fund that we've raised in 2017, we're going to do uh, between 25 and 30 deals. We have so far 10 deals on this fund. And our idea is was to be able to kind of have a model to be sure that we'll be performance for ILPs because we will go back to uh, to our economics for sure but being able to be performant meaning uh, give back the money to our LPs uh, when you raise more than 150 or to uh, 200 million euros it's quite a big challenge uh, when you know the metrics about the, the reality of the exit uh, market. So um, the question that we ask ourselves is when we know we have to refinance company, meaning that we know they're going to be overperforming, the, the one that would be overperforming in the portfolio, when we, you know, we know that uh, they see kind of the criteria that we'll We're waiting for that kind of company. And the three things that we're looking at, and we kind of back test uh, with the company that was real sex successory, such as Criteo, Sigfox, Shift, and Miracle, that kind of company that we invested in, were three things. First was the quality of the business. Quality of the business, as I said, is not the volume of the business, it's more the quality. In SaaS, you have plenty of metrics that you have to check uh, between the, the churn, uh, the LTV, uh, uh, the CAC ratio, and all the things. So the quality of the business. So meaning that all the clients that will take the risk as we've done uh, investing in earlier stage uh, to pay the, pay the product of the company. The second one is the equity. The, the equity. We have a bunch of friends that are doing. They're much more good in Series B and Series C, and we often talk to them to see which one they they want to pick in the portfolio. So the guys that will invest in the Series B and Series C, so kind of the equity attractiveness that the company are kind of uh, they, they have with uh, with our peer that are doing uh, growth stages. And the third thing is the recruitment and most precisely the, the recruitment at uh, international level. Meaning that um, who are the people, senior profile, that are able 
they're taking the risk at still early stages uh, to go and, um, and and to go in in our portfolio company. So this is the three things that we're looking at, and the one under international, the, the recruitment internationally is quite crucial because we know that because we're in France, there's not there's not a lot of company that might be unicorns just on the local market because the local market is not enough to create a unicorn. Maybe in the agriculture field or in the front industry, as we see uh, with Fretting, for example. Thank you. Um, but there's not a lot of company that, that can be a unicorn just on the local market. So for sure, we're going to go for international. There's two types of company. It's either you want to be the European challenger or you want to go abroad, meaning either in the US or in Asia, to create kind of a, a, a unicorn. Uh, and we have that kind of two types. The one that there's no sense to go into in the US because there's one unicorn that has already raised a lot of money. So, and you can be a, a kind of the European challenger and being a unicorn as well because all over Europe is kind of the US. Or going to the US, for example, Miracle done this job. One of the two co-founders went to uh, to Boston with family, and uh, and now he wants to uh, to 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 go over to go over the US or shift technology that went to Asia because there's a huge market over there in terms of so the international senior profile that you're able to hire at early stages so the one that would take the risk as we've done in investing the company at early stage is crucial for us to be able to refinance the company getting refinancing as you're going through the expensive ordeal scaling abroad is a vital thing to consider and we'll be back just in a minute with the SASDOC and Tour panel from Paris. But before we do, I want to tell you about our upcoming and last for this side of SASDOC 18 on Tour event, where we'll hear how US East Coast companies not only achieve the milestones to secure the vital funding they need, but also how they build, scale and exit companies and how Europeans adopt the New York state of mind as they establish offices and HQs in the Big Apple and beyond. Head over to sasdoccom forward slash on tour forward slash city forward slash New York for more info. And grab your ticket now for SASDOC NYC on June the 20th before it's too late. Now back to our panel from Paris. I'm, I'm working for Zendesk now. I've been acquired by Zendesk uh, two years ago. And uh, I'm seeing from the inside, actually, um, uh, a unicorn, what a unicorn is, and post-IPO as well, and uh, the kind of growth, uh, that the, the kind of hyper-growth the company uh, is still having today. Uh, 10 years after the creation and the the what i'm seeing as a the, there is plenty of patterns at, at zendesk of course but uh, the the founders they are super paranoid regarding their customers they are always 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 looking at their customers spending time with their customers even 10 years after while they are super staffed with uh, lots of vps etc and uh, uh, what the the Michael Svein, the, the CEO is always telling is that the of course it's a marathon uh, you are not building a unicorn in one day or at least I, I hope for you but uh, and um, you know customers have very high expectations and expectations are changing through time you absolutely have to adapt to that you have to know that and uh, and the the, the the stickiest you will be with your customers the the yeah the best um I'm, I'm coming from the self-serve uh, SaaS B2B. 
uh, for me it's the best recipe okay uh, uh, I, I don't like enterprise stuff but uh, you have to move enterprise at some point when you want to really become a unicorn anyway uh, so I'm the from the self-service uh, school uh, and uh, what from 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 your point of view uh, what is the best candidate self-service versus enterprise uh, to become a unicorn today or are you seeing some patterns uh, as well So, uh, interesting question, of course. Um, so, first of all, I think it, it requires two very different skill sets uh, from a founder's perspective. Usually, the guys going for uh, self-service have a more like consumer-like um, mindset in the way they envision growth and product development. Um, on enterprise SaaS, uh, SaaS of course, uh, you need people who are very comfortable with very long sales cycles, uncertainty, able to navigate the politics of the big corporates that they're selling to. So very different uh, angles. And the way I, I see it is more um, either you're in the volume game or you're in the strategic asset game, right? If we talk about being uh, exited at a billion dollar valuation, either you do it um, with a self-service product uh, which has reached a very big volume uh, of clients, a very big AR very quickly. Uh, so that is indeed scalable. Or, um, but you have like, uh, let's say a, a mid-sized multiple, valuation multiple, or you build an asset that is so strategic that you can be preempted even with a low volume of clients and revenue at a very high multiple because what you're building is so critical to some of the players out there that um, you become an evident acquisition target very quickly. So I think those two routes are very valid. Um, there are some markets in which it's very hard to build the second route because you know, it's a commoditized market. Uh, you can think about many markets out there today where it's super hard to build something which hasn't been done already and is truly disruptive. Um, in other markets, you still have some missing pieces. You know, for instance, um, I've looked recently at the market, the packaging industry, which is a huge, huge market, super undigitized. There are many things to, to build there. And some people with potentially plenty of money to acquire the digital solutions that's going to disrupt their markets, even though uh, it would be early and at, uh, at very, uh, still with a low number of, uh, of clients. So just uh, if you're in that game, you make yourself... Um, necessary for all the big players of your industry, then you can be preempted very early. Evgenia? Um, so I, I think, I think Marathon's covered a, a lot there. And yes, yeah, so historically you had that uh, self-service SMB approach, which is, you know, you, you're close to consumer, um, brand-like, you know, you've got your inside sales, uh, you're really good at marketing channel, and you've got your... Um, enterprise where you really focus on the account execs and what matters is referenceability and you're either chasing lots of mice or you're going for a few big elephants, right? I think um, historically that has been true for, for the SMB and self-service guys to, to, to go faster, right? You, you can think of um, uh, Box or, or Slack and, and their growth to 100 million ARR. I think that's probably the right thing to think about rather than a billion dollar valuation. But then, you know, we, recently in, in Europe, we had UiPath, which I think has proved us a little bit wrong in the sense that even in enterprise segments, you can grow really, really quickly. Uh, so I think there may be two more dimensions to, to bring to that dichotomy. One is being uh, your buyer's budget, right? So whoever you, you're tapping into, um, say, I don't know, customer service will have a lower budget than the marketing guy, right? Who, who, is, who is, the, is the holder of the budget and who is it that you're selling in is one. 
And I think the second one is is ultimately the buyer persona, right? If you're selling in somewhere that is developer community-like, and that could be the, the case of your path, it could be the case of Zendesk with its SMB or enterprise, you probably have a higher velocity of adoption and of usage, which means you can multiply your seats numbers more, more effectively. So I think that, that could probably be two more um, access to, to analyzing the question. Um, uh, there, there is some unicorn today, uh, 1 billion valuation companies, uh, who made it without being uh, backed by VCs. I'm thinking uh, about um, uh, MailChimp, for example, in Atlanta and Bootstrap, etc. But uh, there are very few uh, models like this. Uh, most of them, most of the unicorn uh, uh, had some VCs, you know, uh, made it with some VCs. So you have a responsibility, you are accountable for that, to bring those companies as well uh, as a, to the unicorn status. Uh, what, you know, what, what I'm seeing today on the VC scene and what I like from an entrepreneur standpoint is, for example, and just to name them, but uh, plenty of them are doing the same now, like uh, Andresen Horowitz, for example, and I, I like personally the fact that you have access to an army of, uh, of uh, partners who are employed uh, by those VCs to help you, uh, guys with a, a large track records that are able to at least give you some tips, well, little tips, you know, about uh, uh, about sales, for example, about how to structure your, your, your sales organization, marketing, etc. So what, um, I haven't tested it myself, you know, so I can't uh, talk much more about that, but on the paper for me, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a super idea and it's luxury, you know. It will obviously help me to, to bring my company to a unicorn status. So what are you thinking about that? What, what would you recommend on it? What, what's your, what's your, what do you think about it? Um, it? It's been a long time that we're thinking about trying to disrupt our job. Uh, there is plenty of uh, VC fund that claim disrupting like the the VC industry. The reality is that this 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 uh, this work uh, uh, was created in the 70s or 80s, uh, and that nothing was disrupted from the LP point of view, from the business model that we had. Like is the same for 40 years now, and uh, and we we kind of navigating with what is on the market in terms of exit, but nothing was disrupted. I mean, in France. Um, in the US, it's true that you have that kind of model like Anderson Horowitz, but you can do that when you have more than 1 billion under management. Uh, in France and in Europe, there's not a lot of VC funds that have more than 1 billion, meaning that you need to have money to be able to pay for a 60 plus person, uh, person on, in, in Andresanovis, for example, like, this is people that are paid by Andresanovis for, uh, the start of themselves. So you have to have the money. And the reality today is that the, except maybe Partec and Edinvest have raised more than 1 billion, if I'm yeah. right. Uh, and maybe not even Cate, but, there's not a lot of VC fund that have much more than 150, 250 over different rates of fund raised. So first we have a problem of amount raised. Uh, and if still we want to be performing for LPs, that kind of, that, that is kind of difficult. I've been saying that that's true that we're trying to be really hands on in companies. 
The first thing is that if there is some entrepreneur in the, in the room, the first thing that you have to ask your, your VC is how many companies are they by, by partner or director investment. Uh, if there are more than 10 companies per person, that means that they're no hands-on. So for that, it's just a case. It's taking time. When you invest at early stages in two companies and you have more than 10 companies, at LIA, we have a maximum of seven companies per person because we know that over seven, we're not making the right job. And we're here to help them. We choose to be focused on early stages first because this is the moment, like the crucial moment that everything happened. It's when you're going to pivot. It's when you're going to like find your business model, the pricing, etc. So for us, it's just much more excited. Uh, and the second one is you create a relationship really deep because you're the, f the first VC, the first party partner. So this is, and there's some that are trying to having to have the kind of uh, model such as Andres Sonarovitz. We can talk about Serena. We can talk about Brega that are doing a great job having kind of operational partner. Uh, I'm talking about Brega, for example, that is doing a great job with the Freightlink, uh, a common company that we have uh, under air, uh, under under recruitment. Uh, they're doing really a good job. They have somebody in the biz dev. So. That might be something that this is not common still, but this is thing, things that we taking taking into account. Our response at that is first we're focused on what we know how to invest in, meaning B two B deep tech company at early stages. We're not doing anything more. Second is we build Elia as being different people. So there's engineers, there's serial entrepreneurs such as uh, uh, Marc Rouget for the one that knows him. Uh, there's really different people that was entrepreneur, was not, but meaning that because we take all our investment decision all together, maybe we'll have the right solution for the right problem at this. Uh... Yeah. Marie Hortense, so yeah. you have the 1 billion. <laughs> right. <laughs> a bit more than, uh, I think 1.2 now. Uh, right. So uh, a little bit of a different approach to Cementeth. Uh, basically, the way we see it is money today is commoditized. Um, there is so much money in the VC world uh, pouring into new funds, bigger funds, and we're part of that trend definitely at Partec, um, that you have to differentiate if you want to, um, you know, to win the hearts of entrepreneurs. So, um, of course, you have to be very present in the day-to-day. Uh, that's true. Um, but you also have to, I think, um, if no one can uh, maybe be Andres and Aurovitz, but uh, you have to focus on specific areas where you can bring value. Uh, the, the angle we chose at Partech on purpose was a business development. Uh, the reason we did that is uh, we have a bit more than 30 corporates uh, who invested money into the Partech funds. Um, and we leverage them actively, actually. Uh, we have three people in-house in our business development team who are not making deals. They're just in charge of creating synergies between these large corporates and others in our network, mm. as well as uh, companies in our portfolio. So BizDev is a, is a super strong angle for us. And Yevgenia, maybe you can... Uh, I, yeah. I have another quick question after that, but... Uh, no what? problem. I mean, if I can introduce maybe like a little bit of controversy. So I come from a private equity background originally where this whole kind of concept of operating partners started, right? 
Now, it's a completely different dynamics. In private equity, you own the company. You can impose the kind of things you want to do, et cetera. And yes, you are kind of like the right-hand man of, of the CEO. I think in venture capital, the reality is you're a minority investor, hopefully with a lot of friends, uh, and you kind of scale the company together. And the minute you, you stop being an advisor and you become a crutch to the entrepreneur and you try and replace them, you probably have much bigger problems to solve. So yes, it's fantastic to have a lot of advisors and it's great to, to sort of have them, those kind of people if you have the resource, obviously. Uh, but I, I just introduce a word of caution um, as to what is advice and what is replacing an entrepreneur. Um, and I think ultimately uh, where the VC responsibility lies, it's, it's ultimate pattern recognition uh, across all of your portfolio. Uh, and I think that's where we're lucky to, to have invested exclusively in one sector and only B2B. So over time, you kind of say, okay, well, this company went you know, up and to the right, and this is what they have done, and this is what we can advise you to. Uh, and I think governance, and people underestimate uh, governance because there'll be a lot of changes throughout, throughout time. And you kind of want to find yourself a partner um, and a partnership that functions, which is uh, very rare in the VC community. And I always uh, tell all the uh, entrepreneurs, go and do reference checks and find uh, find VC firms that are great for you because it's going to be worse than the marriage. You can't really divorce, divorce us, right? We'll sit there on the board and until the, the, the end of your days, so you need you to find people that you want to work with, right? Because you'll see a lot of them, right? Um, so I think ultimately, yes, capital is very undifferentiated in the end of the day. It's you know that dollar or that dollar. Uh, it's finding the people that you want to work with. And if you had to pick uh, a unicorn, or, but not from your portfolio, uh, if you had to bet on a, on, a, on a company who is on track to become a unicorn, uh, what, enfin, which one would you pick? Sam? Um, I would say Algolia. Algolia, yeah. We tried and it didn't happen. Uh, for me, I'd say Doctolib if they develop outside of France probably on the European market. And I really liked my, my colleague's presentation today with, with Alvin, so I'll bet on Tataiku. Thank you very much. Do we have time for some questions? Why did we uh, choose Dakar for investing, right? Uh, well, very simple reason. So the partner um, who is in charge of our African fund is uh, from Senegal. He's from there. He lives in Dakar. Um, so our office is there, but he especially spends uh, his life in planes uh, as we invest in all across sub-Saharan Africa, uh, from Nigeria, one of the biggest markets, to South Africa, Kenya, Tanzania. So our office is there, but most of our business is outside of Senegal. So... Uh, in your company, uh, we are profitable, 1.5 million uh, revenue, we have cash uh, in our company, sorry. So why uh, should we raise? Is there a way for a SaaS company to grow without raising? Yes, there is plenty of a uh, way. Yeah. To, uh, yeah. Are you pro and, uh, I mean, sorry, may, may I, sorry, I'm not sure. Uh, I think you may not, may, maybe shouldn't, right? And I, I think I, I can't repeat enough that not every business is, is a VC business. Not every business should have VC funding. So you should really, it's going to be a very long road to run your own company. It's, it's a very long road to run it alongside VC. So you should ask yourself that question is, you know, is, is that even necessary? I think it ultimately comes down to one thing, right? If you want to build a very big business very quickly, you probably will need external funding. If you got one million and a half in revenue and you're very comfortable to be some form of a national champion or have a lifestyle business, absolutely you shouldn't raise, right? It's more about the speed and the size which you're targeting, but not every business should be a VC business. And many people make that mistake and then burn a lot of cash and then get very disappointed. It depends on the ambition, the size you want to give to your, to your company. And uh, can the VCs help find that senior sales guy? 
we are really involved in all the strategic questions and decisions of the company at the early beginning. We, uh, we, uh, so we, for, for Elia, we always, uh, help them to find that senior sales guy, whatever, whatever senior profile, because it's really structuring for the company to have, uh, uh, top management getting involved into the company, uh, if it's not the right one. So, yes. If, if your VC is not helping to, to find your head of sales, then change VCs on the yeah, next round. <laughs> now we, we interview people actually. So we, we are, we are frequently of the last or the first, uh, depending, depending on, on the, the caliber of the hire. But yeah, absolutely. We just hired, um, an ex marketer guy to, to run show pad sales in the US. So we, we do that all the time. And we should, that's one of the primary responsibilities, I think, of VC is hiring. Right. And we also have a, a role to reassure candidates uh, that are leaving from, from more established firms and try to drag them into your Series A startup or post-seed startup and, yeah. you know, create that uh, uh, sentiment that they have a big financial player behind the company to help them scale and grow. We're here for, for that. What's the other, the number two, uh, the second um, uh, important role as a VP that you are uh, hiring? It's my, my, my question because we are always talking about VP of sales. But what's the what's the second one? Um, uh, is it about uh, yeah. structuring in the engineering uh, team? Uh, is it about is it much more so about marketing? Is it sure? Uh, so I think engineering usually um, come in very early. If not, it's one of the founders actually uh, often uh, as a CTO. Um, I found myself more and more involved in CPO discussions at the moment. I think it's a trend and it's a very good one uh, because it's, it shows that founders have the maturity to think that somehow uh, this product thing in the middle is actually different from engineering uh, and, and technical teams. And uh, CPO, I think, is, is definitely a role where I'm, I'm, I'm looking for some at the moment. So <laughs> if there are some in the room. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the SaaS Revolution show and have picked up some valuable lessons from Rachel Delacour, Mary hortense Varan, Samantha Gerosami, and Evgenia Plotnikova. Next week is our 100th episode anniversary. For the occasion, we've prepared a lessons-packed episode bursting with wisdom and tactics as gathered by some of our most listened-to episodes. Make sure you tune in for that. Thanks for listening and see you next time.